people all the time are looking for authenticity, you know, and maybe those layers or those corporate layers are, um, they're getting found out much more. And if you come back and say, no, this is the real deal. We, we are related. We do work together. We all have the same surname and you give us a business, we won't let you down. That stands for something. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland. When setting goals, you've got to reach for the stars. And that's exactly what Height for Hire helps its customers do. This is the Architects of Business, Joe's weekly series of interviews with leading entrepreneurs in partnership with EY, Entrepreneur of the Year. I'm Ty Genwright and today we'll hear from Fergus and Francis McArdle, who've risen to the top of their family business. There were eight little McArdles as Height for Hire got off the ground. It was all hands on deck and it took hard work and big risks. He took the order and then he had to go find the money. He, he remortgaged the house. That's what he yeah, did. Yeah, didn't tell her mother. Over 40 years, the company's grown from humble beginnings in Ashburn to become an international player. A year and a half ago, we had 20 locations. Now we have 34. So we're getting faster and more agile. We're getting smarter. From construction to changing awkward light bulbs, their equipment is used in lots of different industries, some of which seem obvious and some don't. So they rang up and said, yeah, we need, uh, we need a cherry picker for Mick Jagger to go up in. And they painted it pink, actually. They painted the basket pink. a pinky pink. purple, yeah. yeah. it was a pinky purple. <laughs> Today we'll hear the McArdle's thoughts on surviving highs and lows and sealing deals. Fergus Francis, thank you very much for coming in and talk to us today. Um, so this was originally your dad's business, isn't that right? Tell us about how, how he started it. Well, Dad is a serial entrepreneur, so he started lots of businesses, but we're not here to talk about those today. But there were hairdressers, butchers, lots of various different businesses. So uh, one of the businesses is Height for Hire. Uh, At the time, he he was uh, doing some cleaning and jetting work, and he got a contract in a local factory in Drogheda, which is uh, home home for, for us. And um, he needed a cherry picker to get up to a height to be able to do the job. So he bought a small secondhand one. And then one day a guy, you know, got him down out of the cherry picker and said, uh, can I have a lend of this? And he says, no, 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 I need this for myself. And he said, well, I need it for six months and I'll pay. So he quickly bought another secondhand yeah. cherry picker. He went and over to Port Talbot that weekend. So this was a Thursday and he said, give me until Monday. And he went. Dover uh, bought a machine in Wales, Port Talbot is near the steelworks in Wales and uh, drove it back himself and yeah, got our first order. And that started a little chapter in, in Irish enterprise history with you guys. Absolutely, yeah, I suppose. That's I a nice way so. to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. take our compliments where we get them. Thank so, you. I mean, it sounds like he had a real eye for, 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 for a way of for, for doing business. Uh, and, and is that something that you think he imparted into the, into the whole family or something you learned as you watched him go about his work? Interesting, the whole nurture vase, uh, versus nature thing. I, I think that it is in you. I think that if you have an entrepreneurial uh, family, whether it's, you know, whether you're in farming, whether you have a shop, you know, whether you, you, you were, you know, keeping chickens out the back and, and uh, you know, selling eggs, whatever. Um, I do think that that's something that's inherited, but certainly the environment 
nurtures that and encourages it and makes you brave because we grew up with things being, you know, a little bit seat of the pants at times. Uh, you know, it wasn't always regular yeah, hours so. and there's eight in the family. So when dinner time came round, uh, it was a bit competition of, for potatoes. <laughs> there was, yeah, you, you, that, yeah, yeah, survival of the fittest. So I think it was a combination of being born with that you know that drive but also seeing it and you know not being afraid of it well That's how old were both of you actually when when he started this particular okay, business so 1978 so that would have left me at six you're asking my age <laughs> and, now uh, i didn't agree francis to that. doesn't look like my older sister <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that on, we'll leave that unsaid yeah, yeah. yeah no no I'm, I'm i'm joking of course uh, i would have been seven uh-huh. yeah. when he started this one and i was the one uh, probably who took a lot of the evening time messages uh, mm-hmm. you know so when the phone rang in the evening on we found one of his old business cards and uh, our home number uh, was on that business card as the after hours contact number. So at age seven, you were stuck right on in there answering calls in Absolutely. the evening. And oh, taking yeah. phone numbers and being able yeah. to uh, pass those messages on. But yeah. I think that, Francis, that's a story of every family business. Anybody who grew up in a shop or anything, they have this sense of being involved in the business and uh, knowing where it came from. So... We absolutely had that. But you, you were talking about, you know, in the early years, there were moments where you were flying by the seat of your pants or where the business was. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, at your tender age at the time, uh, how aware were you of, of, of what was going on? Well, I, I would say that we weren't completely aware of the bigger moves. So one of the big things, if you're talking about 1978, one of the biggest challenges, Tyke, was to get money. Like, how do you get money for a business like this? And um, so, yeah, we got the first couple of machines. They were truck-mounted machines. That meant you drove them yourself. Um, but then there was that day, it was about 1980, there was a big plant called Oganish Illumina. Um, it's down in Askeaton in Limerick. Um, it's a bauxite to aluminium plant. Uh, at the time, it was the biggest uh, construction site, I believe, in Europe, close to a billion punts, you know, six, seven, eight hundred uh, million so Pons. contractors were coming in from all over Europe it to build joint, this plant. Yeah, it was yeah. a joint, yeah, it was a joint project. For, for a Canadian company called Alcan. So Alcan Aluminium Canada, um, they were putting the plant together. And the cherry picker, as you might know it, that machine with the, the basket at the end of the boom, uh, a guy from Canada rang us up. We don't know how he got our number. We were based in Drogheda. <laughs> and he said, um, he said, yeah, you're the guy who does cherry pickers. And Harry, our father, said, yeah, yeah, that's me. He said, well, I need six and uh, I need them on. Uh, I need them on Monday and for three years. For yeah. three years. Yeah. And how many did you have at that stage? Two. Two. Uh, so <laughs> two secondhand. Yeah. Ones. Count those two cows. Cow, stop those two cows till like, I count them. You know. So, so it's like uh, Jesus and the loaves and the fishes. <laughs> a little bit. Well, he said he'd check the fleet and get back to them. He didn't say <laughs> what he had. So he took the order. It's a very important thing when you're in any type of rental business. He took the order. Um, he went and uh, secured the machinery. It was being built in Scotland at the time in a place called Cumbernauld, a new town outside Scotland. And then he had to go find the money. And that's another that's an, another story mm. or that's another key moment. He, he remortgaged the house. That's what he yeah, did. Didn't tell her mother. No, she Claimed found she still out doesn't later. know. But she <laughs> no, does know. She, did. she figured it out eventually. Yeah, She's forgiven him. We we ratted her out. <laughs> or ratted him out. That's what he said. You know. Yeah. Um, but in any case, um, he so sat in the bank. Yeah, he sat in the bank. Francis, you know this. Well, no. What I was going to say is, so we wouldn't have been aware of all that. We we know about it now, but we would have known that every phone call counted that every message that came in had to be mm. recorded. 
um, and Fergus. But I think that's an interesting one. But that that was another loan that he he was looking for, uh, and he sat out in um, his regular bank. Uh, ran him like a dog would be the way he would describe it. Uh, tried all the mainstream banks. Ended up going to a bank which doesn't exist anymore. It was probably a high risk mm. type of a bank mm. and he sat in in reception and he got chased out of there after sitting in all day the bank manager came back in the next morning even was, they didn't want to know him they mm. didn't want to know him then he was in reception day two and then at about four o'clock he said I think I just broke him he came out and he said okay okay just will you go home you know this better work or else it's your job and my job so yeah so listen, you remember there, there, there's eight in your family, mm-hmm. yes. um, yeah. and that's an awful lot for any set of parents to be dealing with. Let alone when you're trying to build a business empire. I mean, were they hectic times, or was it a case of everyone mucking in and and and, and doing their bit? I'm going to. I I wouldn't say it was quite like that. We all uh, came to the business, let's say, a little bit later. We all have. Um, other you know skills you know we went university we did other things and all came into the business at later stages so I would say that we remember this time as children and then as we grew up as teenagers we went off and very much did our own Mm. thing we Um, were encouraged to have a backup plan Um, none of us were encouraged to come straight from school into the business we all were told to get out and train to do something you know get a look around and then bit by bit we Mm -hmm. you know we all evolved back into it but but that wasn't that wasn't the plan when we were in our teens that we were all just going to do our leaving certs and troop up into the into the office. And it's probably very it's very sensible that he encouraged you to to uh, have both a backup our, plan. Well, our mother or both especially, of you, both yeah. of your, both our mother especially no encouraged us to. Yeah. But, but did it seem realistic or did it seem plausible at the time that you you might actually end up all in the family business? I would have said mm, no. no. It wasn't the way we were thinking. But like, so we rent cherry pickers, we rent access machinery, and. Like we, we feel that we're the good guys, you know, you can get the work done faster um, and you can get the work done safer. But that is something that the economy has to catch up with. So let's say in the 70s when we were doing this, the argument always was this is so expensive. You know, safety wasn't really on the radar. And even through the 80s, Francis, you weren't seeing that, you know. But you've got a flashover point within this type of industry. Once the price of labour increases and once safety starts to become paramount within a society, then boom, you know you start to rent cherry pickers. So I would say, Tyg, that um, we would have only started to see in the noughties a real opportunity and a real scalability in the business. Mm. Um, and that was the time when, obviously, I always feel the boom in Ireland started with Riverdance. I remember being <laughs> in university and, you know, Riverdance was on, you were listening to it, and there was a huge confidence that went through the mm. country. And I think that that's when industry started. Um, you know, Ireland as a tax haven, they needed to build all these biscuit tins. A lot of this construction was, you know, these concepts of steel construction were coming from the States and they needed cherry pickers and we were there, mm. you know. So, um, and I feel, to answer your question, the business started to scale at that time and that's when it started to make sense to us. Mm. So where were you at your stages in life then? Because you both had done your own thing mm. for, for a while, isn't that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, I uh, have, I was heading towards uh, English teaching and uh, I have a master's in English and I went over to France as an au pair because I wanted to learn a second language and back in the 1990s you didn't travel for free, you had to work when you travelled. It's not like, not not like, not now. like now where I'm you're, on my you know, gap year. No, I'm yeah. on my gap year, I'm going to go for three months and not work. So, um, 
I'm a little bit different from Fergus in that when I came back, I had already, in addition to doing just the mainstream um, degree, I had done a, a transport license. I was trained in health and safety. I was a cherry picker instructor. So in the summers of college, I was kind of helping out in the office and helping out with the business to pay back the fees that you had to pay in the 1990s. So I was a little bit more tailor made for the business. And there was a bit of a turning point in 1989, the Health and Safety Act came out in Ireland and that put the cat among the pigeons with a lot of construction companies. You've all these American businesses coming over in the 90s and they wanted uh, safety standards. They were very insurance conscious. So um, I came into the business around 1992. So uh, for Fergus, uh, he was out in the big bad world for a little while. Yeah, well, after I listened to River Dance in the... In the that was 94, 94 yeah. yeah. We all I, remember the hairs in the back of our neck standing up. That's right. Yeah, no, I, I trained in architecture and I got a degree in 1995. Uh, by 1997 I was working in Spain so I worked with a very well-known architect called Enric Miralles and at that time uh, he was uh, he was shortlisted to to build a parliament in Scotland that competition with the, which they won and yeah I worked on that for some years so that was very much my trajectory um, it was a really exciting time let's say but also uh, to an extent there was a glass ceiling with it you know when you're involved in that type of design at that type of level there's crazy hours and um, you're never that guy if that makes sense you're, you, you know you're, you're helping that guy you know so but might, might uh, you have been that guy eventually um, well I think it's funny when you talk about creativity people have this idea that architecture is a very creative uh, industry it really isn't you are you know you are bound by your masters by your patrons all of these kind of things and I've found that having a business and I, I think you see this within this, this the, the, the uh, our friends the entrepreneurs that you see it's all about creativity and all about kind of saying now well why you know why don't we question this and I found it um, once you learn the skills and once you learn the the tools of the trade that you can start to be creative. Do you find yourself shouting at Dermot Bannon on the telly? I know Dermot very well, actually. <laughs> well, and uh, he no. uses height for hire machines, so of no course, doubt. Well, he uses the best. Yeah, we've, we've a couple of war stories myself and Dermot, so I can't, I can't. Uh, All right, say too much. Them here, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, I, I really like that. I really want. I think people like transformations anyway. But mm. yeah, no. Mm. Well, you're part of them anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it is nice to drive past a building and say, oh, you know, I was in there when it was coming out of the ground, or you know, you, you, like we we tend to notice when glass needs to be cleaned, when gutters are getting full. You know, we mm-hmm. we, we notice when well, light opportun- bulbs are gone. Well, you're like your dad; you're seeing opportunities yeah, for business. Seeing. So it's nice that you know when you drive past an iconic building and you see that the bulbs are working again, and you know that that's us. That 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 was us up at three o'clock in the morning helping somebody to get up there to do it. So so, um, yeah, no, it is. It is nice. Our, yeah. our machinery does bring us to interesting places. You know, we would do a certain amount of, of film or TV work. So we would have worked on Game of Thrones, you know, over the, the course of that series. Um, also, Die Hard 5 was one that we did in, wow. in the past. So that's, now that's you know, a nice one to be involved in. And um, yeah, then we would have worked on the Olympics as well. You know, that that was one of the bigger moves we made in 2010, 2011. Uh, we went over there and worked with more specialised machinery on on the large sites over there. So, have you taken anyone famous up on your cherry pickers? 
Um, yeah, I think we have, but you have me on the spot now. Yeah, I've um, got to think of them. Well, when I, I, leave. I remember um, on the St. Patrick's Day parade, um, uh, 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 the, the presenter was yes. was going up, and she was doing a lot of the footage from mm-hmm. our machine. And I said to the operator who's bringing her up, and I said, make sure she puts a harness on. She must wear a harness. <laughs> and when, her, you know, she has a kind of a person to help yeah. her with the setting and whatever. And when she saw the harness, the helper said, oh, my goodness, you can't expect her to wear that. You know, she's in her good clothes. And he said, if she doesn't put it on, she's not coming up. Safety first. So, yeah. so I got a photograph on St. Patrick's morning. Uh, with Blonded beautifully dressed with a lovely coat on and she was doing this here showing the harness was under the coat because uh, Well I'll take know. your Blonded and I'll rage <laughs> and Mick Jagger because ooh. <laughs> <laughs> No so well, 19, 1982 you, 1982 in Slane uh, so we got this call anyway and it was the pride of the fleet at the time it was a Starlift 722 Coles machine and uh yeah, so they rang up and said, yeah, we need, uh, we need a cherry picker for Mick Jagger to go up in. And they painted it pink, actually. They painted the basket pink. a pinky pink. purple, yeah. yeah. it was a pinky purple. <laughs> so as part, of the, if, as part of that set, he went into the cherry picker and went up. So, yeah, yeah Mick There's Jagger. no accounting for taste, okay. is there? And colour schemes and all the rest. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to try and trump you on that one. <laughs> well, we did the recent stones. So Mick ah, Jagger, so yeah. we've done... Uh, yeah, we did that But he, he didn't go well. up in a cherry picker on mm-hmm. that one. I think we've else. had enough sibling rivalry okay, now for okay. one. <laughs> for one podcast um, listen fast, fascinating stuff so far uh, Fergus and Francis do stay with us because still to come on the architects of business uh, I'll be getting the McArdle's thoughts on making deals and all the different ways in which they help their customers to get high <laughs> you're listening to the architects of business on Joe in partnership with EY entrepreneur of the year visit eoy.ie to find out more about the program and this year's finalists Get in touch. Mail us on thearchitectsofbusiness at joe.ie. Fergus Francis, thanks so much for still being with us. Um, you've talked about the, the, the economic crash and how you came through that. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the, How bad did it get? And, and what was that diversification born out of? You know, what was well, the atmosphere well, like? It was well, very bad. It was bad. <laughs> In 2008, I looked like I was 12. So, <laughs> you know, so definitely, definitely changed uh, my hair colour, not Francis's. Uh, but, but, I, I'm uh, allowed to have a few secrets, Fergus, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, no, it was pretty bad. So let's say 10 of the biggest uh, construction companies in Ireland, um, you know, eight of them were, we were the one of their key suppliers for this type of machinery. We were getting that amount of work. And uh, I think there's only one or two of those businesses left, you know. So you were seeing a re- in real terms somewhere between a 70 and 80 percent drop. Mm-hmm. That was across the board. Anybody involved in construction, and uh, yeah. So at that time, we we had already been in the UK. We we started to move into it um, at pace um, because we had a lot of assets, a lot of machinery that we had to move out and we bought a business also in Central Europe as well in Slovakia and Hungary and yeah so it was pretty pretty bad I would say So when the proverbial hit the fan here some businesses might have you know curled up and hoped to weather the storm and some would say curled up and died but mm-hmm. you kind of put the accelerator on expansion elsewhere Yeah well, we, we've, we had four locations in 2004 let's say you know and um, Around Ireland uh, we had at that time 2004 no we had we had uh, three locations in Ireland and one in Scotland and now we have 34 locations 
you know. Mm. So, um, as Francis said, in in Ireland, we've gone into these little smaller locations. This is about getting close to the customer. So, you know, that's let's say one side of our business. And then in the UK, we went into specialised. So machinery. from four to thirty-four within a period of what's that? Um, Fourteen years. Yeah. Well, even even it's now, even faster. We like a year and a half ago, we had twenty locations. So now we have thirty-four. So we're getting faster and more agile. We're getting smarter. Uh, we grade the depots. So we, we, we look at what type, what, as far as you get closer to the customer. So you figure out who wants what, where, and you put that, you start to target the type of machinery, the type of service you're giving in the different locations. So um, that, that has made us able to scale and grow much, much faster. So it took us, what, 20 years to open the first... 25 year overnight success, yeah. yeah it took 20 <laughs> years for the first three and then after that, yeah. you know, we've got, we've got much, much faster. But when you move into a new market, is that the kind of the key difference between you and your competitors? That, like, you know, actually examining the local market and the demand for different types of kit there? Or is there another strand, I, I, uh, I secret to the success? The secret sauce. Yes. You never said you'd need the recipe um, to the you know, secret I, sauce. I think the real thing is to, to pick your fights. You know, to go in and if you think, look at the competitors, can you win this fight? You know, um, I think as well that sometimes you have to look, you have to really assess what makes you different, you know. And coming from a small uh, island community, which we are, uh, all of us, um, you know, I always think about the villages in the west of Ireland, the guys with the shop, the undertakers and, and the pub. And, you know, they, they try to get you using the three of them on the one day. <laughs> they redirect you from the undertaker takers into the pub and that meant that we had to have a wider range of machinery than anybody else had and that gave us a specialism that then when we were going to the UK we were able to say well we know all of these machines and we can start to pick the sectors where we can make Mm -hmm. money and I think that stood to us you know. Timing was also very important like we spoke about the the, you know, our turnover was dropping month on month for probably about 18 months. And we ended up at about 30% of revenue of, of what we had the previous year. And uh, the timing to go into the UK when things were building over there and they were steady. And of these 34 locations, if you come back and talk to us in a year's time, we may have closed three or four of those. So we don't see it as a permanent thing. They're like Mm -hmm. pop-up shops. They're they're going to be open when there's uh, work there, when there's um, Mm -hmm. maybe a big construction site. We'll go, we'll set up something very specialised to meet that need and then we'll close it up again. So the business is becoming much more more fluid you know we're not interested in buying premises and having you know lots of big headquarters we just want things that we can set up very quickly and if it's not working we can pack up our bag and go to the next town so and I think as well Francis that the metrics behind you know so that we we've written systems we've written our own software so we're actually watching the, the success of that like we are an asset management company we buy stuff and we have to rent it as much as we can so you have to follow the work you know you talked about um um, you know, winning fights there earlier, mm. Fergus. What what fights has the the company gotten into in uh, um, the last ten or so years? Yeah. Okay. So I think well, let's maybe battle sounds less aggressive than fights, oh. but um, within the specialised sector um, in the UK, we're absolutely dominant. Like on the larger truck mounts, you know, um, there we probably have seventy five, eighty percent of that work, and that puts us 
um, in the good books with, let's say, wind energy companies, etc. And they've got a very large footprint and we see other opportunities there. So it's, you know, it's that type of thing, looking at a sector and deciding that, you know, this is we're going to own this. Whatever happens, this is going to be us. And another example might be with a supplier. So a supplier might take advantage and, you know, say there was a tariff put on steel there recently, which which mm-hmm. will will affect us buying a machinery that's primarily made of steel. And, you know, on the day you need to buy the machinery for a customer and have it in stock, you won't have the fight with the with the with the supplier that day. But you write it down and you note it, and the next time they come in looking for business, you know. You, so mm-hmm. I think when you're talking about picking your fights, I, I think it's a, it's about timing. There's a time to maybe give a little, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a time that you go in and you just go for the jugular and you just don't let anybody away with anything so it's it's about knowing when to you know when to go for it and and when to say no we're, we're going to stop doing this now we're we're not because i guess a, a big part of what you guys do is you know every day's a new deal or a negotiation or yeah, a pitch yeah. um you're only as good as your last hire <laughs> yeah or your last pitch yeah. yeah um what kind of uh, method have you evolved down through the years or what are your kind of golden rules when it comes to okay. closing deals making deals good question can I Mm, I think you have to tell your story and don't stop telling your story and um, we are a family business we probably fit more into a kind of a middle stand this, this, you know within the British Isles let's talk about that and there aren't that many family businesses um, they're definitely in our you know in, in, in what we do in our business in the cherry picker business you know there's, there's definitely um, not uh, you know families of eight you know working at it you know the Von Trapps of cherry pickers you know that's, that's not there so that makes you different, you know, and it makes you big enough to um, to do the work and small enough to care, mm, you know. Absolutely. And yeah. what's the difference you think that makes to, 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 to customers, even to suppliers, to people you want to do business with? Why should they care that yeah. you're a family business? I, th- I think that one of the, you know, let's, let's even talk about Joe Media, that, you know, that the way that the world has changed with regard to social media, people all the time are looking for authenticity, you know, and maybe those layers or those corporate layers are um, they're getting found out much more and if you come back and say no this is the real deal we we are related we do work together um, you we know, all have the same surname we, mm-hmm. we all have the same surname and you give us a business we won't let you down Mm. You know, and that stands for something, I think. Because I guess a family business is, you know, the people are in it for the long haul. Absolutely. Yeah. And and even some of the customers that we go out to, to meet uh, will say, you know, when I ring one of your competitors, I get a different person every time. You know, so um, I think there's a big comfort if you're going in and you're pricing and tendering for work that might be two or three years away, that the person that is pricing that work and helping you to choose your, your uh, the machinery and the supply chain that they're still going to be there and I think that the fact like I'm in this business over 25 years now so there's there's sustainability there's business continuity and uh, hopefully for a long time there'll be the McArdle's name over the door um, whereas a lot of our competitors you don't have that they get bought and sold the core values are changing it's uh, it's it's quite uh, frustrating for for some of the some of the people who have to get get 
machinery from them. And what about, I suppose, relationships with, with other peers in the in the business community, in the enterprise community? What kind of strength do you find in, I suppose, maintaining relationships with, I guess, just the people who are in your shoes that aren't necessarily even in the same field, a bit like you have in the, the Entrepreneur of the, of the Year Network? I, I found it very supportive because a lot of the events I would have gone to before we got involved with Entrepreneur of the Year, we were going to exhibitions and shows mm-hmm. that were in our business. So you had to keep your poker face. You couldn't show delight that you just got a big order. You couldn't show that you were disappointed with the pricing you had achieved on something. Um, whereas in this network, people are very... Now, there are some of our customers in it, but people are quite diverse. And I think you get fresh eyes. So somebody, mm-hmm. you know, just a little nugget of wisdom over a cup of coffee. And you're thinking, oh, my God, like they've been doing that in that industry for years. Why are we not doing it? Maybe Ty gets back to what we said earlier. Like there's, you know, there's a lot of machinery in that yard, you know, <laughs> so that they have that kind of sense that that, that you touchstone, know, of, touchstone of, of, of yeah, common sense. It doesn't make that yeah. much sense to me what you're saying, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's what I, I see yeah. in it. Yeah. I think it also really helped me with, with you know, you were saying, how do you approach the customer? It helped me with my pitch because you're going in and speaking to people who are computer experts or they're experts in retail and they're saying, sorry, what is it you do again? And they want you to describe it in five seconds or less. Yeah. And The elevator pitch. Yeah, yeah the called, elevator yeah. pitch. And I think that explaining what you do in a way that a person who has no connection with your business can understand it, I think that was really good training mm-hmm. for, for us. And, um, you know, I, I, I would be guilty of presuming when I would have gone out to customers in the past that the buyer knew what they were buying and then I realised actually this buyer is buying everything from staples to cherry pickers to you know panes of glass mm. they can't be an expert in everything so I think that in, in some ways we adjusted our pitch to suit the knowledge of the customer and, and get closer to what, what they needed. Yeah I think a certain amount of mirroring absolutely mm. Yeah, in yeah. the way that we were dealing with customers. Lots of pictures, a tablet and lots of pictures yeah. instead of sending them a big thick document. And I think yeah. you see yourself also as an educator because um, cherry pickers are absolutely about everybody. Everybody's got something, you know, that they can't reach. You know, it, it is. A, it is in about your house, an ambition. Yeah. Some tree in your back garden. Does anyone actually use them for picking cherries? You must get asked that a lot. Why are they called cherry pickers? I mean, cherry trees are pretty low. Yeah, it's true. Well, it was the first. It was the first thing that they were used for. You know. Um, but uh, I can't. I can't answer that. You got me on that one. Yeah, you got me on oh that my one. god! I thought you'd be the oracles of cherry oh, picking. Cherry pickers, no. yeah. But I, I want to bring you back to the family because I keep dwelling on this a lot. But there are eight of you in the, mm. the kind of the, the, the second generation. Are you all? You're all involved in the business. Is that right? No. Sure. No. no. Four, four of us. Four no. of you. Okay. Yeah. And does that, I suppose, make or lessen the risk of um, sibling squabbles between you know? Various uh, McArdles in the in the brood. Well, we've just got other. We've got other brothers and sisters who are really useful at other things, you know. And come the revolution, I don't know if there's going to be too many cherry pickers, but we've got a brother's a carpenter, and he's, yeah. you know, a very useful guy to know. Yeah. So, yeah, we were all asked, or or you know, we were all encouraged to do our own thing, and some of us came back into mm. it, and some of us didn't. I, I, like at a family event, it's good because it stops the ones that are in the business from just talking about the business. Mm-hmm. So. Um, 
um, and the fact that our mother didn't get involved in the business means that when you go down and see her uh, not that you're banned from talking about cherry pickers but it's just going to go over her head so um, so it's nice to have family members because it just it helps you to set aside especially if you've had a bad day and you can just go down on a Mm. Sunday and hang out with you know your siblings but but when you do need to talk to them um, they do they've all worked in the business you know even in summers and helped out mm-hmm. and they've seen it from the sidelines so if there is something that you need to talk about um, I, I find with, with, you know friends of mine who have a small family sometimes they say oh I'm exhausted listening to the you know mm-hmm. the, the stressful situation they're in over and over whereas we can kind of share it around we can share around the stress and the mm-hmm. love so it's it's nice to have a big family What's it like though if you're uh, not a McArdle working for Height for Hire do, do, do they feel like half McArdles or how do you find the right people to add into the mix? It's a, it's a good question. I think, um, and this was part you were asking us earlier about transition or transformation of the business. When you go to a second generation, you want to figure out how do you scale the, the business and how do you scale this good idea that you've been handed over, but also how you keep the essence of it. So we did get some help some years ago and the business consultant came into us and he said, you know, core values it was this kind of Jim Collins thing um, and and uh, he said, no, write down what you think, you know, if you go back to 1980 or 1981, what was the thing that actually got that business to grow? And we wrote down a core values. I think the key one, Francis, is we find a way. And when we when we talk to people or, you know, go back to even Jane, and I was watching her kind of going, no, this person finds a way. You know, they figure out how to do it. Who's um, this Jim Collins person you mentioned? Yeah, Jim Collins, he's a, quite a famous business leader. He wrote the book Good to Great. Um, I think people would be familiar with it. But we... We did a lot of... um we did a lot of reading of books and that maybe deep down I'm an academic soul searching (laughs) and good to great even though it was a little bit outdated at the time I think that was the one that really helped me go this is what What we have to do it told me that um, you know they talk about the hedgehog concept right so what they say is do you love what you're doing can you be number one at it can you make money out of it and if you don't answer yes to those three (laughs) things stop it and then it brings you into the stop doing you know and I firmly believe that um, the only currency in the world is time and as you get a bit older and a bit grumpier you say I'm not wasting my time on this anymore and that's what it's about you know how are you spending your time you know are you pushing this in the right direction have you all read that book or is that just a Fergus thing no no we've all read it and and lots of the staff have read it as well so it actually gives you um, a shared language and a narrative and and the one that gets quoted uh, most often uh, one is find a way because that's one of that's our main core value but the other is face the brutal fact yet never lose faith. So sometimes, you know, if things are going wrong and somebody comes Mm -hmm. in from the workshop and says, Francis, we have to face the brutal facts, that means Mm -hmm. something has gone terribly wrong and we have to find a way to fix it. So we have... Yeah, we've used right people on the bus, right seats, you know, and I think the big thing, business is changing massively. Like there's a huge transformation in business, Um, especially, you know, what you see in the social media sphere. Sorry to repeat that again. You know, the golden pages that looked like a fantastic idea 30 years ago I I don't even think anybody under the age of 10 won't even know what it is it's evolved yeah and now it's what's a Yelp reviews and Google reviews and it's it's just it's 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 search isn't it Mm. and reviews but getting back to the people because I do think that that is you know the most important
important part of any business. You can have a fabulous idea, but you need people to scale it and, mm-hmm. and, and roll it out. And um, this uh, this idea of finding people who will persevere and, you know, they're with you all the way, good times and bad. And if you can find those people, um, it will really help the business. And also, I think that people are changing the way they view their job. It used to be you clocked in, you did your hours, you got paid. And now people are saying, but where's my place? Um, you know, what's my progression? Does this fit with my core values? Um, you know, and, mm. and I know that that all sounds maybe a little bit corny, but people are spending so much time at work, more time at work than they are with their families. Mm-hmm. They, they want to work for a business that does good or that, you know, brings people home safe or that's going to give happiness or enlightenment or whatever it is. It's got to feel right. It's got to feel good. And I think that, you know, people complain about younger people, the millennials and all all of that. And and certainly the way employees view their place is is changing. But I I do think that that's uh, that's a benefit because, you know, when you get them engaged and when they're with you, they're absolutely... Absolutely. Mm-hmm. With so there, you. there must be a generation of, of millennial McArdles now. Um, you've talked a lot about, you know, the, the strength that being a family business gives to you. Mm-hmm. Are, are they uh, primed to take over the, the, the levers and start moving cherry pickers Francis around? Is a little bit further ahead than me, so maybe I'll let yeah, you answer that. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm, I'm the one with the oldest kids because I'm the oldest one. Um, I don't know if the next, if the third generation, um, it, 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 it feels a long way off. Um, but I think that business is changing so fast now that the change is like we're 40 years old this year and I think in another 10 years the business will have evolved in ways that we can't even imagine now and mm-hmm. um, there are jobs uh, people are doing jobs now that didn't exist 10 years ago and I think for me to guess you know maybe I don't know you know those buzzier light pack little little jet packs maybe <laughs> yeah, we'll be yeah. renting those because when people as Fergus says people just want to get up there and get their job done and if they find a way to do it without needing a cherry picker the business could evolve in ways but, but we can't even imagine an inevitability as, as as generations move on that a family business such as yours maybe won't be a family business forever yeah, it's a good question. I think succession is always a challenge for family businesses, you know, and I think that we were given, and the thing that I am very pleased about is that we were given the choice. We genuinely were given the mm. choice as to there whether... Was, there was no pressure yeah. to come in. And, and, and I think that, that even you would now, have to offer that to other people. I think even now, if we just said, you know what, I've had mm. enough of this, they say, all right, okay, best mm. of luck, send us a postcard. I don't think, mm-hmm. uh, like, I still don't feel any, any pressure to stay any longer than I think I can make a contribution um, but whether or not it goes to a third one and there's lots of complications when a business gets to this size you have inheritance tax issues and you know there's there's lots of other things that you're not thinking about in 1978 when you start a business mm. um, if it gets to a stage where we feel somebody can bring it to the next level level quicker than, than we can we'd certainly consider getting other people involved um, but uh, I don't. I don't feel we're there yet. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Okay, would agree with that. Francis Fergus McArdle, 
thank you very much for talking to us today. Yeah, thank, thank you. you for having us. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. very much, Sag. Thanks for joining us today in the Architects of Business. Thanks to our guests, Fergus and Francis McArdle, our producer, Patrick Hohey, and all of the team here at Joe. Our programme is made in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Go to eoy.ie to learn more about the finalists for this year. And don't miss out on past or future editions of the Architects of Business by subscribing for free on iTunes, on your favourite Android podcast app, or you can watch us on YouTube. While you're at it, check out some of Joe's other podcasts too, including the GAA Hour and our movie show, The Big Review Ski. But for now, I'm Ty Genreich. Thank you so much for being with us today, and I hope to see you again very soon. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland. 